you can open it, grab it right now and open it to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Thank you, team, for leading us in, in music, musical worship today. Um, if you were not here last week and you weren't able to grab or you didn't get a chance to grab uh, one of these, we've got these available for you. If you are a note taker, uh, you are welcome to have one of these ESV scripture journals. So uh, it's got the Col book of Colossians in it as well as places for you to take notes and write down whatever you learn or want to remember from the sermon or if you're doing devotions this week or whatever it is and you're like, I don't want to mark up my own Bible, but I'm a note taker. Uh, slip your hand up. John's got, got a stack of them. If you want one of these to take notes, slip your hand up nice and high. John's going to be around to hand those out. I got one too. If, if someone in the, Hey, there you go, Mark. Perfect. I'm not a note taker, but I know a lot of people are. So, uh, which was really nice, last week we handed these out, and a lot of people were taking notes, which makes the speaker feel really good. So, uh, so, if you don't take notes, you'll know how I'm feeling as we go through this. Um, so, uh, please feel free to take some notes, and... Uh, uh, and, and I said this last week as well, um, one of the best books on the book of Colossians to go along as well, if you want to kind of dig really deep into the book of Colossians for the next couple months, because that's what we're going to be, as you see in our series, But First Jesus, um, which is the message of Colossians, I would encourage you to get on Kindle or order a paperback or something like that, the book by Sam Storms called The Hope of Glory. Uh, it's a it's a hundred day devotional. However, the word devotional might throw you off because you might be used to kind of like our daily bread kind of devotional. This is not that. This is like commentary uh, heavy devotional. So um, don't be thrown off by commentary heavy either. Just just get it. It's a really really good book. I've been going through it as well. Brad Hooper uh, uh, um, suggested it, and uh, it's been it's been it's been really cool to go through every morning the book of Colossians and just read through, uh, just kind of phrase by phrase, verse by verse through that book over the next hundred days. I would really encourage you to do that. The only other announcement I have is that young adults which we cut young adults off at 23. At that point, we apparently have said you are no longer a young adult. You are an old adult. So if you're 24, I'm sorry, you are an old adult. Yes. If you're 23, that's fine. But once you cross over the threshold of 24, you are no longer young. You, are, you have another comment. We're not going to check IDs. However, so, but, so, uh, so... If you want to kind of place yourself there, that's fine. Um, but right after this service, at Liam and Laura Freer's house, there is a young adult's lunch. Yeah, so if you are a young adult in that stage of life that is chaotic and confusing, which you're probably feeling today, um, you are welcome to go for a little homemade. What are you, what are you guys making? Oh, making tacos, of course. So I didn't know if you were making like, I don't know why, of course. Um, I didn't, if it was like Jamaican patties or something like that, because I lived off Jamaican patties when I was in college. So uh, Jamaican patties and broccoli, actually. Pretty much that and then uh, 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 Old El Paso fajitas. Back and forth. That was it. That was dinner. Just back and forth. That was, my life has changed a lot since 
college. So I actually, I sympathize with those in college. I remember what it was like to be in college. It is a chaotic and confusing time because probably some of you sitting here today, you might honestly be saying, like, I, even one year from now, I have no idea what my life is going to look like, where I'm actually even going to be. Maybe like six months from now, you have no idea where your life is going and what it's going to look like. And, and so I understand what it means to be a young adult in that chaotic and confusing uh, uh, stage. However, I would say, and what we're talking about today in the book of Colossians, all of us to an extent, whether you came in here uh, as a follower of Jesus or not, or you're kind of wrestling with that, all of us struggle with the question, or we wrestle with trying to make sense of this life. What is this all about? We ask the question, why to God or to whoever you may believe in, or if you're an atheist, to nobody, and you're trying to make sense of this life. If you've seen the movie or read, if, read any books, uh, if you've seen the movie the theory, of, uh, the theory of Everything by Stephen Hawking, he was an atheist, an astrophysicist, one of the smartest men on this planet, suffered from a disease called ALS, however, was just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind, however, he was an atheist, and he said this, because Christian or not, I think we're all trying to make sense of life. Stephen Hawking said this, Remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Stephen Hawking spent his entire life trying to find, through mathematics and, mathematics and physics, trying to find essentially a God equation. Something that would replace God, that was material or could be thought of in your mind or could be equated out over a long, 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 long mathematical equation covering chalkboards. The movie called it the theory of everything. And that was his, that was his life goal. Which is actually a pretty fascinating movie. I would, I would recommend it if you want to see it. The theory of everything. However, in the movie... Stephen Hawking, one of, the mo- one of the most intelligent men on this planet, claimed he found the God equation. I have found, a math- I have found a- an equation to uh, replace God. You do not need faith anymore. We figured out life. It makes sense through this equation. Stephen Hawking was smart enough to actually figure out that his equation was wrong. He actually debunked his own equation. And Stephen Hawking, unfortunately, uh, passed away, never making sense of life. He tried, but he never made sense of life. I would encourage you to watch the movie because I think the star of the movie is not Stephen Hawking. It is his wife, Jane. And his wife, Jane, spent her entire life uh, taking care of their three children and also taking care of him as he was uh, uh, progressively, as ALS was spreading throughout his body. Jane Hawking, though, being married, married to the, one of the most foremost atheists, was actually uh, a devout Christian. Jane Hawking said this later on as, as, as about her husband, whom she loved, but she said this, Their theories, as in Stephen Hawking and the scientific community, reduced the whole of creation to a handful of material components. They complained with a weary disdain of the stupidity of the human race, that human beings are always asking the question, why? 
And she says this, perhaps they should be asking themselves why this is so. And then I think it's on the screen, this part of the quote. Might it not be that our minds have been programmed to ask why? The why question is the one which, above all, theologians should be addressing. This is Jane Hawking who said this. I think it's a profound statement that theologians alone, not scientists, are the ones who are equipped to answer the question, why? Why are we here? What is this all about? Trying to make life make sense. I think it's a profound question because in a world of iPhones and genetic cloning and crazy things that 50 years ago people would be, uh, would, would, you know, would be floored that, that we're actually covering that kind of territory. Does Jesus have any relevance? And I think it's in this question that we still have, not just still, we have the answer that the world is still asking when they're wrestling with when life makes sense. Because the Colossians here in what we're covering today is a simple message that says in Christ is when life begins to make sense. Only when acknowledging Jesus as supreme over everything else will life itself make sense. Maybe you're here wrestling with some of those most basic of questions or those most basic of desires, trying to find some kind of God equation or trying to find yourself in some experience or somewhere around the planet. The book of Colossians says this, understanding Jesus as supreme over everything else, including your own life, is when life begins to make sense for you. So with that being said, I would encourage you to go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to have you stand as we read this. Colossians chapter 1, verse, verse 15. We're actually today only going to cover the first half of what's known as the hymn uh, to verse 17, but I'm going to read down to verse 20 because this is the full hymn or what was perhaps suggested as a hymn that Paul or maybe someone else wrote because it's very poetic. It says this in verse 15. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, or actually I think it should be in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and, even more so, for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. There's a lot in this. Uh, this is one of the major passages of scripture about Jesus Christ. Uh, and I think it's, it's really cool that we're looking at it. We're splitting this in two weeks. Brad Hooper has the privilege of preaching the second half next week. So this is like a to-be-continued. Stay tuned for the better preacher next week. Okay, Brad Hooper. 
So uh, as we're looking at in the book of Colossians, this is not just a cool name for a church, like a cool church plant name, Colossians. This is just a simply a, a letter written to the people at a church in a city called Colossae. And this church was a church plant that was young in duration, but also in experience. And they were, as we know from Colossians, or as you will we'll see, they were in need of maturing in their Christian faith. Very similar to perhaps an ancient day restoration church. And one of the things we looked at last week was that because of their situation and what was going on in their city, which if you want to look at last week, uh, 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 you can talk to me after or check out our Facebook page. I believe it's on there. Uh, you can visit our Spotify page and listen to our messages uh, from previous weeks if you'd like. Um, but you'll know that the church of Colossae was being pressured on a whole bunch of different fronts. They were being pressured with a promise of spiritual satisfaction in a whole bunch of different areas. It's almost like when they're flipping through the TV, it's like commercial after commercial after commercial after commercial, whether it's from Jewish tradition or uh, Greek philosophy, a whole bunch of different angles of your life will be satisfied if you buy into this belief, which threatened to take them away from their faith, which was supposed to be based solely in Jesus Christ. And I think it's actually a, a, a similar pressure that we still today are pressured to fill our lives, our schedules, our to-do lists. We are pressured to fill our lives with stuff, whether it be religious or social or material baggage, in order to be satisfied in life. We're pressured to fill our weeks with the promise of satisfaction. Which leads to all of us, which I would say in our culture, this is certainly true, which leads to all of us being really busy, but having no idea what we're actually supposed to be doing. I don't know if you can relate to that. Your, light, your week is sometimes filled with stuff, but you have no idea if this is what you're actually supposed to be doing. See, there's nothing wrong with being busy, but you should know why you are busy. And I think the same thing was happening in this church here in Colossae. And what I love about the book of Colossians, because it doesn't like have this long argumentation or kind of like uh, uh, go on the side. It goes right to the issue. And it goes right to the person of Jesus Christ after presenting this pressure. And what we can learn from that is this. Primarily, in order to change your life, you start with Christology. In order to change your life, in order to even change your to-do list, your priorities in life, it starts with your Christology, which is just a fancy word for what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Because there was so much promise from other sources, Jesus could have been looked at as just another option or another cult-like leader to follow in this smorgasbord of religious belief. And I think that's still the same way today, that Jesus can often be presented as he's just like one option of this smorgasbord of religious beliefs that I identify myself with. However, Colossians goes right to their Christology in this hymn, which is verse 15 to 20, and there's a key word or a key phrase in that hymn. Do you know what it is? As we read through it, what was it? Well, preeminent is used once. What phrase or word is used over and over? You're right, Alex. That is kind of the key, key point, which we'll get to in a second. But what is the word that's used over and over, a phrase that's used over and over and over and over and over again? 
all things, all things. You, you notice in the, in the hymn it says, uh, 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 by him in verse 16, all things were created. At the end of verse 16, all things were created through him. Verse 17 is before all things in him, all things hold together. And then later on in verse 18 that Brad's going to be looking at, similar, that in everything, it's not all things, but in everything. And then in verse 20, through him to reconcile him to himself, all things, over and over and over and over again. And there's probably some heritage students in the room. If there's, if there's a line that's repeated over and over and over again, you should identify as one of the things that the author is trying to actually get at in God's word. And so, the point of the hymn is simply this. Jesus is supreme over all things. He's not just another option, just another, like, thing to add to your to-do list. It's like, well, I got to do this, and I got to do this, I got to do this. Oh, yeah, I got to spend time with Jesus, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. The point of the hymn is to challenge our Christology to say, no, Jesus is so important to all of creation, that he is supreme over all things and therefore should be supreme over all things in the church and therefore should be supreme over all things in your life. We don't usually approach our week like that, or Jesus is just kind of another option. However, we're being challenged to approach our week being like, more than anything else, how is Jesus my identity in Jesus is going to define my week. I think that changes a lot in our life. That's what Paul and his comrade Timothy are telling us through this hymn. That this is Jesus. That he is supreme over everything. Because there's many varied opinions about Jesus, and this is why it starts with your study of Christology and how it affects every area of your life. Just the other day, I was cutting my grass. Like an old adult does now, I was cutting my grass. And uh, a couple people came up to me, and they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, I told them I was a pastor, and they were really excited about that. They were, they were trying to find common ground with me. It was like, well, we're both Christians. And uh, they were really excited about that I was interested in, in what they had to say and in their, you know, that I, I knew Jesus. And they, were, they tried, hey, we're both Christians, this is great. However, their outlook on life and my outlook on life were vastly different. And it comes down to one thing, what you believe about Jesus. See, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a created being. And that actually we as humans can be a lowercase God as well, alongside Jesus. That he is not supreme over all things which is what Christians are challenged in here uh, in Colossians 1 to actually believe. And therefore, because uh, the view on Jesus or your belief in Jesus is different, you have a confused outlook on life. Only when we understand and acknowledge his supremacy will our life begin to make sense. So let's dive into this. Okay? Let's dive. There's, there's so much in here that we're just going to kind of scratch the surface, which is why you need to be kind of meditating on this throughout the week. We're just going to scratch the surface, but as we begin, I want to focus on two phrases that I think is really important for us to understand because I think that can be misunderstood if you, uh, at first glance. The, look at verse 15. The first phrase says this, He is the image of the invisible God. It's just a statement. He is the image of the invisible God. It's just a statement by carrying so much importance to us as as Christians and how we understand Jesus. 
We know from the Bible that God is invisible. It says God is spirit. God is invisible. Those in our our finite minds, we cannot actually see the infinite God. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen him because God is spirit. However, it says here in Colossians chapter 1, and this is where you need to kind of uh, write this down, circle, because image is such an important word, and those who have been with Restoration Church know I love this word image. It carries so much meaning for us still today. But when it says Jesus is the image, it's the Greek word icon. Image means it, it's, it's something that looks like or represents something else. And so we ask the question, where can God be seen? Well, in the Bible, it talks about how creation points to God. I think people can, next week, Brad is going to point you to God through the word of God. But the place where God is seen is where? Jesus. So if you want to see God, if you want to get to know God, where do you go? Jesus. That's as simply as what it's saying. He's the image of the invisible God. So if you want to see God, if you want to experience God, where do you go? Jesus. Let's yell that out louder. Jesus, okay? Thank you. That's so important for us as Christians. Hebrews 1 verse 3 is on the, on the screen. It says this, He is, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, it says, is the exact imprint of God. Being God himself, of the essence of God, but in a different person, Jesus is the image of God. The exact imprint. John Calvin says it this way. His, if you want to know what God is like, it says this. His righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, and in short, Jesus is his entire self. In short, what, it, what John Calvin is trying to get us to to know is that if you want to know about God, where do you go? Jesus. Thank you, Brad. That's why Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, if you know the verse, he says this, whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. This is important for us because we often tend to look for God in other places, okay? We tend to look for God in other places, whether it's through a song or a feeling or an experience. I did a quick Google search. There are many people, apparently, who have written many books and chapters who have claimed to see God. However, Colossians 1 says this, you don't know God without Jesus. You cannot see God without Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, really important phrase you need to understand. Everyone, everyone follow with me so far, okay? Secondly, it says this, and this one's really confusing if you don't understand. It says, the firstborn of all creation. That little phrase has caused quite a conundrum for the last 2,000 years. The firstborn of all creation. That has caused uh, uh, much debate in the church, uh, unfortunately. And we're going to try and understand what Paul is actually saying through here when he says the firstborn of all creation. There was a dude named, and this is a little bit, apologies for a little early church, a little bit, so you know a little bit what's going on. I shouldn't actually apologize. This is important for you to know. There's a dude named Arius who got onto this. He actually, this was believed before this, but he made it mainstream, the belief that Jesus was not God, that he was a created being based on Colossians chapter 1. And his followers were known as 
Arians or uh, uh, ascribed to Arianism. It became so mainstream that they held a council in uh, a place called Nicaea and they developed a Nicene Creed. Anyone ever heard of a Nicene Creed? This is the reason why there's a Nicene Creed. Because of the heresy of Arius and the Nicene Creed uh, 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 f- uh, 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 formulated and cemented the belief, the true belief, that Jesus was begotten of the Father, see, speaking of his unique relationship with the Father, but not made by the Father. And that's what we believe today. So Jesus has this unique relationship as Son with the Father, but he was not created. See, this whole dilemma is really answered in the next verses where it says by him all things were created i mean if you're or in him all things were created i mean you you can't be a created being and then in him all things were created so it really answers the question in the next verse so what is what are they actually trying to say in here you know debate debate aside well firstborn not not only can mean that you're like the born first but also means that you are preeminent you know, in that culture, if you were firstborn, you were the most important one. <laughs> so how many of you are firstborns? You are the most important one of your family, okay? So you get the most stuff, you have the most benefits, you have the most privileges because you are the firstborn. Sorry to those who are secondborn, I am thirdborn in my family, so I'm like nothing, okay? I am like left with the scraps. Uh, this is true because even the, the, the nation of Israel was called the firstborn of God. Speaking of, not that they were like the firstborn nation, but they were the the preeminent nation. They, They enjoyed the benefits of God more than all the other nations of the world. Do you understand what it's saying then? Jesus is the preeminent one, the firstborn of all creation. What this means to us then as created ones, all of this, which we're going to get to in a second. Here, here's, here's, what, here's what you take away, really simply. You were meant as creation. You were meant because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the preeminent one, and we're going to look at the rest in a second. Really simply, you were meant in your life. You're trying to figure out, what is, when does life make sense? You were meant to look like Jesus. You were meant to look like Jesus. Check out the prepositions, because there's a ton of prepositions in this, in, in this passage. For in him, all things were created. Later on, it says all things were created through him. And verse 17, he is before all things. We don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritty of all of those prep- prepositions. But essentially what it's saying is Jesus was before the created. He was a part of creating. And he also is the agent through whom God created. And what you can take away from that simply in the broad aspect is that all of creation has the mark of Jesus. All creation has been created through him. It has the mark of authenticity through Jesus. Your life, when it was created, when God breathed you into existence, was supposed to look like Jesus. It's like you're supposed to look like the person who created you. It has his mark, his DNA. I don't know if you've ever, uh, well, you guys are young. I'm not talking to the old people here, but my, my, parents, my parents collect these things called uh, Hummel figurines. Anyone know what Hummel? I'd be, I'd be, you have some, Ruth? 
That's, I think it's the cool new fad amongst colleges, these humble figurines. Um, I'm just kidding. They're not actually. I don't know. There's another. Royal Dalton. That is the name I was looking for. Royal Dalton figurines. My parents collect these Royal Dalton figurines. And on the bottom, it has the mark of authenticity. Like, this was not created by Walmart. Okay? This was created by a person. This is their mark of authenticity. This was the number, so you know how many were actually created by this person. It has all of their aspects of creation in it. It's not just like factory, this like boom, 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 and they're all set, put on the shelf. It has a mark of authenticity, which meant it looks like the creativity of its creator. So when it says that all creation was created through Jesus, it has his mark of authenticity. It carries his creativity, his grace, his look, his DNA. That's what your life was created to look like, Jesus. Even from the very beginning. Jane Hawkins, again, we're going back to Jane Hawkins. I was really on a a rabbit trail down the Hawkins whole life and getting uh, understanding this family because it's fascinating. She said this, Again, being married to an atheist uh, astrophysicist said this, scientists still cannot satisfactorily explain why some human beings are prepared to give their lives for others. Unless they have the DNA of God himself in them. The complexity of such anomaly lies far outside the scope of their purely mechanical grasp. The spiritual sophistication of musical, artistic, politic, and scientific creativity far exceeds that of any primitive, uh, primitive function programmed into the brain as just a basic survival mechanism. What she's saying is, left to ourselves, if this was just a random thing, this is just a dog-eat-dog survival, whoever can, you know, the strongest can survive. However, because of Jesus, we have the mark of our creator. And we have things like grace and sacrifice. Those of you who watch nature shows who, who, who are not made in the image of God, you'll know, and sorry to you animal folk out there, there's a huge difference between humans and animals. And those, those who think that the, the naturalistic world is like what we should aspire to be have just never watched a nature show. <laughs> it's like, it is brutal. Um, yeah, like... You know, lion comes in, eats all the other little lions, and that's just normal. That's just a way of life. However, we as humans who have been created with the DNA of God would say, this is wrong. You can't get away with that. However, if we are just left to our own devices, what separates us from that? Still through Jesus today, Colossians chapter 3 later on, and I won't steal the thunder of whoever's preaching it. It says, we are being renewed after the image of its creator. We are supposed to look like Jesus. And through our faith in Jesus, we are being renewed day after day after day to recover what it looks like to look like our creator. Which begs the question, which those of you always make fun of me because I always I say that too much in sermons. Which begs the question, why don't we? Why don't we look like our creator all the time? Well, I think it com- narrows down to this little phrase. It says this in verse uh, 16 at the end. All things were created through him, 
because it has his DNA, but also for him. All things were created through him and for him. I think this is where we go wrong. See, we can be okay. We can feel special. I can guarantee that most people in this country of Canada would probably affirm and say, yes, I believe that there's a God out there who's created me and he has a special purpose for my life. I have no idea what that is, but he has a special purpose for my life. According to statistics, if you believe them to be so, the majority of people would believe that in Canada still. However, I'm not sure if they would say my life is actually supposed to be for him. I'm supposed to give my life for him. Live my life, not for myself, but for him and everything that I do. And here's what we can take from the hymn. We lose our sense. Life starts to stop making sense. We lose our sense when we lose Jesus as supreme. We lose our sense when we lose Jesus as supreme and life gets chaotic. That's what I think the author is going for here. If you look at verse 16, he starts, say, it says, by him all things were created, and then he starts naming things. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, I don't think in this hymn they're just naming off random things that are created. Why is he naming thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? What's they, what are they identifying? all of those things that would claim supremacy in this world. It says Jesus is actually Lord over everything that claims supremacy in our lives. It's not just a random list of created things, but powers and authorities. Remember, Colossians, the Colossians, the people of Colossae were tempted to explore various options, but but we are challenged with that Jesus is Lord over all of them. See, when Jesus is not acknowledged, though, as Lord, those powers that we, that we think are supreme tend to be in rebellion when they don't make him Lord. And life gets chaotic. And that happens in our own life as well. That's like worldwide, when people think they are supreme over everyone else, even God himself, people lose their way. Even in our own lives, when we think something else or our own life are supreme and not Jesus, we tend to lose our way. We will lose our way, and life starts to make less sense. Uh, my friend was just talking to me. He's, he works out at the gym. He's a, he's a gym guy. I won't call him a gym rat because he's not a rat. He's a good guy. But uh, he, he works out at the gym, and there's a lot of people in there who are, you could list as, they believe that they're like the power and authority. They are in there not to be healthy, you know why they're in there? To be more powerful than the person working out beside them. And they think, I'm the strongest, baddest guy in this gym. And uh, my friend started sharing the gospel with him. And this is how he presented the gospel. Because this guy literally thought that he was the strongest guy in that gym. He could beat anyone. This it sounds like great stuff. These are grown men. I could beat up anyone in this gym. I'm the strongest, baddest guy here. And my friend started saying, well, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to get into a fight. You're going to get a criminal record. You, like, you are not supreme in your life. You're going to answer for the wrong things that you do eventually. You're going to ruin your life. And I'm not sure if you've ever thought of that before. You see, when Jesus is not Lord, when he is not supreme, we lose our way. This happens in marriages every single week. When you think the husband or the wife thinks, I am supreme over my marriage more than God. I can say what's happening in my marriage more than God. We lose our way. 
We do that with our children. We do that with our friends, with our family. When we think, I have more say than God does in this relationship, we lose our way and life starts to make less sense. N.T. Wright, though, says this, though the powers are now in rebellion, he, that is Jesus, remains their true Lord. See, we, we use the phrase like, I'm going to make Jesus my Lord. You can't make Jesus your Lord. He is your Lord. All you can do is acknowledge that truth. It's like flat earthers who claim that the earth is flat, but everyone knows they're wrong <laughs> or weird. You can't make something true. You can acknowledge that it's true. See, this world is going to be in rebellion until, as it says in the book of Ephesians, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of that rebellion and chaos will cease because everyone will understand Jesus is supreme over everything. And life makes sense. I got to finish with this last little part in this passage, but it's super important. Look down at verse 17. It says, he's before all things, and then this last little phrase, and in him all things hold together. Now, I'm a little sympathetic for those who are listening uh, to when, when Paul writes this, because some of these people had seen Jesus, like flesh and blood Jesus, die on a cross. And now Paul is telling them that the same person that they talked to is the one holding all of creation together. That's a little bit, that, that's, a, that's a big jump, you know, from, from you, know, you know, courageous example who would, you know, go to bat for me, who would take my place on a cross, to now being the sustainer of all of existence. That is a large, large jump. So I'm a little bit sympathetic for those who are listening and, and wrestling with this. Is Jesus, the one who's hanging on the cross, who died, the one who is holding all things together because they said we saw him flesh and blood a man just a, a, a man now holding creation together sustaining life itself but I think we're given little bit sneak peeks even when Jesus walked this earth Sam Storms bring this up and brings this up in his book the hope of glory when the disciples are in the boat and the waves and the winds start crashing around him, Jesus gets up and, and causes the wind and the waves to cease as if he is the sustainer of even the weather, the climate on the Sea of Galilee. And what is their response? Who is this man? This is not just a, a normal man. And they're actually afraid of him saying, who is this man? And that's why I believe we are challenged with little, little tidbits that Jesus, the one who hung on a cross, the one who died on a cross, is the one who is holding and controlling everything that is happening in this universe. That word hold together actually is related to the word commends. And when you commend someone or recommend someone, what are you doing? You're actually trusting that that person is going to be able to hold it together, like do the job. That's when you commend someone which reminded me when Nikki puts me in charge of the children, I'm not sure if she would commend me to be like a, a full-time dad. Because when she gets home, by no means did I hold everything together. Stuff's everywhere, dinner's not made, things are dirty. 
I didn't hold it together. However, we are told that here at Jesus, we can actually trust him to hold things together. Which we end with, Jesus is the only one who can actually hold your life together. Can I get personal with you? My life and my schedule, if I did not have faith in Jesus, I would have no idea where I'm going. For one, I think I would be that, that not nearly as strong in the gym, but I would have the same attitude, being like, I'm, I'm supreme. I can, I, can, I can say what I'm doing with my life. No one can tell me what to do. I would, be a, I would try to be a savior for people. My life would be full of stuff, not all good. But I have no, no idea where I'm going in life. And I've felt that. However, Jesus, basically, in Colossians 1, is the only one who can hold your life together. He is the basic operating principle of this entire planet. So much so that even those who oppose him are entirely dependent upon him. In closing, there was a man who was opposed to Jesus, who kind of same beginnings as Stephen Hawkins, who, Stephen Hawking, whose name was G.K. Chesterton, who was a philosopher, a brilliant, brilliant young man. And at the turn of the century, everyone's modernism was coming in. Everyone was trying to discover the new thing and, and, and discover what had never been discovered before. All these young men who were trying to be the, the fastest, the, the most intelligent people who had ever walked on this planet before, who were trying to figure out life. However, G.K. Chesterton came to know Jesus eventually, and his whole life was transformed. And he said this in a quote, I am the man who with utmost daring discovered what had been discovered already before. I freely confess all the idiotic ambitions of the end of the 19th century. I did, like all other solemn little boys, try to be in advance of the age. Like them, I tried to be some 10 minutes in advance of the truth. But what I found was that I was 1,800 years behind it. See, G.K. Chesterton understood that the event that life makes sense already happened 2,000 years ago in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when life makes sense. Guys, we are being challenged with the person of Jesus Christ, what we believe about Jesus, and our prayer and our desire through this book is that, as the, that we would have a longing for Jesus so much that the, as the psalmist declares, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Guys, only when Jesus is acknowledged as supreme will your life start to make sense. If you, if you are in here today and you have not done that, today is the day for you to finally say, Lord, I give you my life. You are, you are more than anything else I have in my life. I want to start, I want this life to make sense. Or if you're here, in a, if you're a part of our church and you're like, I, I need to confess some things before God. My schedule is full of other things. I've not, I've not even considered what Jesus would want in my life and you need to come pray. I would ask you, I would love for you to uh, come up and pray with me after the service. Guys, who holds this universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person the resurrected Jesus. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much that these 
words are so paramount, not to just our theology, not to just our, our doctrine and what we believe, but in our simple day-to-day life. That you are the image of the invisible God. If we, if we, want, if we want to know God, we know you. You're the firstborn of all creation. You are preeminent. You are the most important thing that exists, important person that exists in our life. God, I pray that we as a church, we can't make you Lord, but I pray that every day that we would acknowledge your supremacy and that we would live a life that makes sense under you, submitting and sacrificing our life under you. God, I pray that if there are some in this room who have never done that before, pray that today would be the day that they would submit their life, give their life to you so that they receive a new life, a new purpose, a new sense. God, we love you. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen.